Thank the Lord for kale or pizza, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time together. And we pray, Lord, any distractions that would be moved away. Lord, help us to understand this sometimes uh, appearingly on the surface, a complicated book of Leviticus. And God, we pray your Holy Spirit, Lord, would just fill this place and fill our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we as a church, uh, many of us are reading along in the Bible and we're right in the middle of the book of Leviticus. Now, it's not too late to jump in, but I'm gonna tell you, if you're jumping in now, hold on. Put your seatbelt on because this is the book where a lot of times people will, uh, if they're going to read through the Bible, say, I'm going to do all this. By the time they get to Leviticus, they do a couple things. They're either like, I'm going to skip that and just start when they pick the program up next week. And then the second thing happens, usually they just stop all the way. Don't stop. Okay, go through it. Today, what we want to do is we're going to look through that book, try to make it more understandable and connect it through the lenses the lenses of the New Testament through Jesus, because that's the only way we can fully understand God's full purpose there. This is the kickoff of a sermon series called God Provides. And we're gonna find in this portion of scripture, moving from where God had made order out of chaos to now God is providing for his people. And the interesting part is this, God provides what they and we need, not necessarily what we want. We're going to find as we go through these weeks that even when we don't know that we need something, God is there providing it. And you'll see that throughout the readings over the next few weeks. He does the same thing for each one of us. And today what we're going to talk about is God is providing our most basic need, the scapegoat. But to kind of get your idea wrapped around this, your head wrapped around this idea, I want you to ask this question. It's the first one on your outline. What is the greatest provision you've ever received? Now, notice I I didn't say gift. It could be a gift. But what's the greatest provision, something that someone has provided for you that you ever received? Think about that. When I asked myself that question and started wrestling with that, I came up with my wife. That's what all you men should say. Your wife is the greatest provision God's ever given you, right? We know that. But let's look at the second one, right? What's the greatest provision you've ever received? I was thinking about when I was at St. Louis in seminary. It was my first year, and I had never been to the dean of students' office. Let's think about it. If you're in seminary and you get called to the dean's office, you're in trouble. Well, he knocked on my window. I was waiting for a friend outside, and he window, I rolled the window down a little bit, you know, and he goes, are you Tim Perkins? Yeah. I want to see you in my office tomorrow at 9 o'clock. Oh, Lord Please give me grace, provide me grace. So I showed up in there and he says, we have a special agreement with Senator John Danforth, um, representative from Missouri all those years. He said, the Danforths recently retired from uh, serving the Senate and they have come back home and they've built a five acre estate about 10 minutes from the seminary in a town called Ladue, right in that area right there. And so I said, okay, I'm listening. And he says, uh, what they want is a, a couple that's married with no kids, two-year commitment that you would live on that property in the carriage house. When I heard carriage house, I was like, I got to figure out what that means, right? Okay, carriage house and no rent, no utilities, everything paid for. And there's just a, and I'm thinking, this is great, but there's a few things you need to do. So you have to be there to um, 
be on the property if they're ever traveling. Like Christmas time, they're going somewhere, you have to stay there, no problem. If there are people or the Danforths coming in and out of the airport, you have to take one of their spare vehicles, which is like a Mercedes, I'm like, no problem, and go pick, take, go to the airport, bring them back, and meet all these people, no problem. And they're like, and every day you gotta go down this long drive and pick up the mail and bring it in. And Mr. Danforth said, oh, by the way, I got this refrigerator full of craft beers out there, so every day you can take one craft beer uh, home. Now, this is not good for me, but back then I thought it was. You know, I'm like, this is like heaven. So I'm like, this is the greatest thing. But then the last part of our stay there, uh, Janet Reno, had, Attorney General at the time, had asked Senator Danforth to lead a Waco investigation report of the Branch Davidian stuff. Now, for some reason, the FBI staked out our house for two months. 24 hours a day, there were two FBI people living outside the house. And I started thinking to my simple self, and I told my family members, I said, man, I'm in the safest my whole life I'm ever going to be. We have FBI people sleeping in our driveway. And one of my wise family members says, you know, Tim, there's a reason that those FBI people are sleeping in your driveway. Not all that safe. So I thought, okay, this is good, but there are some drawbacks to this, right? If you think about your greatest provision, whatever you had in mind, if it's something that is earthly, there are a lot of good things to it, but it's never perfect. There are always some drawbacks that come with it or strings attached, if you will. Today, what we're going to talk about is by far, hands down, no argument here, the greatest provision you will ever receive if you receive it. His name is Jesus. And in the book of Leviticus, what we know it as, it's called the scapegoat. Let's read a couple of verses here. These are a few verses after what Wendy read. Chapter 16 of Leviticus says this. He, that's Aaron, the, head, the high priest, he is to, to lay both hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. And this is what has commonly been known as, from biblical times, the scapegoat. The scapegoat. Now, you might have used that term, heard that word. Uh, unfortunately, you might have been the scapegoat in your family. You might still be. You're like, I don't like that. And that's okay. But what it means in the Bible is, this would be an easy way to translate it. A scapegoat is an escape with or run away in the wilderness with sin, okay? Something, this is a scapegoat, it escapes with the sin and takes it away. Now, this is just one portion of the book of Leviticus, predominantly from chapter 16. But if you've ever spent time, and some of you are in the middle of it right now, in this book, from the surface, it's pretty complicated. You might look at it and think, what in the world does this antiquated or whatever you want to call it type book have to do with me today? Why am I reading this? Why, does God, why did God out of the precious few pages of the Bible that he has preserve all these details for me to read today? Remember, the Bible is written for you, but it's not about you. The Bible is written for you, and so this book is for you to try to digest and figure out what's going on here. Now, 
We do not have by any stretch of the imagination enough time to cover all the subjects. You're going to be in here like, how come you didn't talk about chapter 18 of the things you are not supposed to? I mean, anyway, if you haven't been to chapter 18 today, go there. Um, You're going to be like, how come you didn't cover this? We're not going to cover all of the, the nuances and you name it. But what we are going to cover is what I would believe to be some of the most crucial that will point to our Savior Jesus, because that's the most important provision right there. So if you look at the scapegoat, the idea that God gives the Israelites um, an opportunity once a year to put their sins symbolically, but for real, on the head of a goat. And then you get that feeling that it's going away and it's not coming back. It's leaving, going out in the wilderness. What a good feeling and reality and truth that had to have been for an Israelite that was worshiping God in that way and really trusted to do what God said to do. It was beautiful. But on top of that, there's this huge sacrificial system. In fact, there's animals being brought all the time, grains, you name it, blood being spilled in the, in the worship experience there. There's like the grain offering, the guilt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, all these offerings Someone told me this morning, they said, how did the Israelites have time to do anything else? And you're doing the sacrificial system. It was quite a bit. And if you think about the experience of all that, if you were there bringing an animal that you had raised for the years that you've had it, and it was one of your best ones, you're supposed to bring the best and maybe you even named it like Carl. And then you see Carl go in and then you're like, what's going on here? But then after that happens, the blood is splattered everywhere. And, and it's, you know, you name it, poured, splattered. And then that, that meat is cooked. And part of the priests will have some of it. But your family gets to have some of it. In fact, uh, Pastor Jet said this is probably one of the first grilling groups that ever started. I hope you don't splatter blood around in your grilling group. If so, give me a call. But you have good food. And this is part of what the Israelites experienced. But it was a lot. But why? And that's a question we want to ask. Why did God use a sacrificial system to provide for his people? Why all of that? There are two themes that continually come up that we could answer this question with. And we're going to look at those two today. So why the sacrificial system? The first way we could answer it is it's for God. For God to clear the balance sheet. Now, this is super important because God never changes. He is who he has been since forever. And he's the same now, then, and forever. And there is a balance sheet that God has that he needs to deal with. What is that balance sheet? Simply put, there are mistakes we make. There are times that we sin. And God cannot act like, oh, it just doesn't exist. There's nothing wrong. I mean, think about it. If you were a a good parent or grandparent and your children or grandchildren made mistakes, you wouldn't say, well, that's okay. Let's just sweep it under the rug. You might want to because you don't want to deal with it. But you know what? A healthy, godly way is to deal with it. We need to expose this and deal with it. So where do we get this idea? Let's look at Leviticus chapter 16, the first five verses. And um, I had Wendy and the reader start at verse two, but I want to go to verse one here because this is a rather interesting way to start. 
Verse one says, now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two of Aaron's sons when they approached the presence of the Lord. Let me just stop right there. Aaron, who was the high priest, the guy that was put in charge by God of all these, his two sons, previous chapters, went into God and he killed them. Now, Moses doesn't give us a lot of detail in the writings here of why, but we get aspects of it and ideas that they went in there just willy-nilly. They didn't prepare like God had instructed them to prepare. And he says, you know what? I'm going to strike him down. Boom, and he does. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll be backing up like, God is serious about this stuff. There's a reason he gave us all these I's to dot and T's to cross. I better follow them as I do it. So, what does that tell us? Just that verse right there. It says that God, God is perfect and holy. It's a theme that runs throughout scripture. God is perfect and holy, right? He's perfect in a sense that he is without sin. He is unblemished. The word holy in scripture means to be set apart. You can get the idea of like to be different than, than others, but you don't do all that other stuff. You are set apart. You are without sin in, the, in that aspect, okay? You are perfect and holy. And what God is showing us here in the balance sheet is that he is perfect and holy and we are not. Aaron's brothers were a prime example. And when you come into his presence or try to and you don't have all this stuff covered, it's not going to work. It's not going to go well. And we saw that with his brothers. So let's continue on um, with these verses two through five. And I got to tell you, I'm glad I'm a pastor now and not in Aaron's position as a high priest because listen to all this stuff he has to wear. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to enter freely, okay, into the most holy places behind the veil in front of the mercy seat on the ark or else he will die. That'd be pretty scary. Because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. He says, this is how Aaron is to enter the holy place with a young bull for a sin offering, ram for a burnt offering. He is to wear a sacred linen tunic, undergarments. He must tie a linen sash around him and put a linen turban on. These are holy garments, and he must bathe himself with water before he wears them. That's about all I do is I do take a shower before I come up here. But all these other things, turbans, no. And he shall take from the congregation of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Okay? This is a little complicated. It's a lot of detail, a lot of prep. Can you imagine the worship setting then? All these animals running around. The smell, the sounds and the sights that you see when you come into God's presence. But let's go a little further here. Psalm 89, verse 14. The first part of it says this. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. You see, where God is seated, where he does his stuff, his throne, the foundation, it says, is righteousness and justice. And we can look and see that not only is God perfect and holy, but he is just. God is just. Now, We've been told also that we've been made in the image of God. And I believe that's where we get that, that inner feeling of the need for justice. Each one of us has that. When you drive and someone cuts you off, you want justice. And you're going to find it in different ways. But we also, when someone violates us or a family member or a friend, we want justice. And on this earth, Earthly justice is never perfect. It's never fully complete as God would have it. And so God, having the balance sheet of sins, 
says, the best we're going to do here, since I am just, is we need to have payment for this. And we see in Leviticus that the payment is primarily through the blood being spilled. Now I want to pause right there. That's a big question that I wrestle with. And I even ask other pastors, other theologians, like, where does blood come from? Because God, if he wanted, because he's God, he could actually say, I'm just going to declare forgiveness here and declare that it's done with and dissolve it. But he chose this sacrificial blood system. We get a glimpse in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament where uh, the writer of Hebrews says that without the spilling of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we don't know exactly. Uh, I've tried to do research on this. It's not, it's, there's an element, okay, blood, maybe history. There's some, some covering here. But, there, but God, basically, we kind of just have to take it how it is. God is saying blood is a way to cover and pay for these sins. There's an element there of death, right? Our, our, our sins bring death. An element of, of somebody paying for, animal paying for, those sins. It's kind of where, where God goes with this in the book of Leviticus. But he's not only perfect and holy and just, but check this out. God is also our provider. Because here's what he's doing with the sacrificial system. He is providing a way for us to reconnect with him. He's providing a way for the Israelites to say, this is what needs to happen so that we can be together again so that you can be in my presence. And remember when I asked the question at the beginning, the greatest provision you've ever had, here it is. Here it is. For the, for the Israelites, it was what was happening in the sacrificial worship system. Because this was how God said, I love you and I want you to be in my presence. And that leads us to the second theme of why the sacrificial system. It's for God and it's also for us. It's for God and it's for us, for you. A big part of this, why it's for you and why it is for us, is it's for us to know the consequences of our sin. In fact, Romans 6, 23a says this. Simply, the wages of sin is death. You know, Paul is very clear here. He says, when we sin, it causes death. Now, you may step back and say, well, I sin all the time and I don't really see the death aspect of it, but think about it. Sin causes death all over, not only from the beginning of time that, that Adam and Eve started to die spiritually, they started to decay in their body, they were slowly dying. But when we sin, we kill relationships. We kill um, uh, the spirit inside of us when we sin and we sometimes become numb to it. I mean, death is all around when we sin when we choose to do what's against God's will and his nature. And so when the people during Leviticus, they would go to the worship and go to the altar, they would see that up front and clear. The wages of my sin is death for that animal. The blood has to be poured out because death occurs because of what I did. I can't imagine the psychological aspect of that. You, you smelling it, seeing it, hearing it, and then those animals are happening. It was a very real sense of there are consequences to my actions. Someone told me this week, I, they, they said, I wonder if we take it so seriously. Because think about it. We don't have to do this anymore. There's something different that comes in. 
His name is Jesus, right? We don't have to bring all these animals. It's Jesus' blood that pays for it. I wonder if the consequences can be felt as strong today as then. I believe so. All we got to do is pause and see what the damage is to our deeds, our actions, and our thoughts. So it shows us the consequences. And then the next thing is it also, the sacrificial system with the scapegoat helps us to make atonement for our sins, but also between you and God. Atonement. Now, what is this word atonement? We don't use this. And like I said, we can't cover everything in Leviticus, but this is an important word we, need to, we can't skip over. Atonement is what God talks about. And it's really neat. This word could be broken into at one mint. Okay, you're at one mint. You're now one with God. Atonement is basically a, a paying for and making right you between someone else or something. And this is with God. And so go back to the scapegoat idea. Jews today, traditional Jews on their calendar have a high festival day. It's called Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement. And this is the one time a year specifically that they will celebrate the scapegoat idea where that scapegoat would make them one again with God the Father, right? So so see how all this can be understood as you look at the Old Testament and make a lens with the new? So Leviticus 16, 6 through 10, we're not gonna go through it for time's sake right now, but that will explain more as we read about the scapegoat. But I wanna go to Romans 6, back to verse 23, the last part. Remember the wages of sin is death? But what's Paul say? But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, right? So we have the sins, we have all those consequences, but the gift through a sacrificial system, if you will, is through the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's the greatest provision, Jesus and atonement, Jesus and atonement. You know how this connects so well? If you knew the book of Leviticus and you lived at the time of Jesus, you would have been looking for a sacrificial lamb, this Messiah that would come and pay for sins, if you will, once and for all. And look what Jesus' cousin John, as he's ministering at the Jordan, notices and says about Jesus. Verse 29 of John chapter 1 says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see that connection there? They were looking for this ultimate, this final scapegoat, this final lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And that was Jesus. What you don't want to miss is this final question. What are the consequences of using or not using this provision? What if you leave it on the table? You're like, you know what? Jesus is okay, but I can find my own way through this world. I'm self-reliant. I can do my own thing. I don't really need Jesus except when I'm struggling. But God's like, no, we need Jesus all the time. Think about it. The sacrificial system, this was going on, man. They were thinking about it. They were like, hey, we got to prep for that because we want to make sure that we're at one with God and, and, and bring it like he says. And Jesus, he covers all that. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. You remember I said at the beginning, that I was thinking of my greatest provision and it was a stain in Ledoux. I have something much better than that. 
much more real than that. And it comes from my parents. This was a phrase that they would tell me all the time when I was a kid, even up till college when I broke my leg. Whenever something would happen to me or my body, mom or dad, it didn't matter, one of them would always say, I wish I could take that from you. I wish that could happen to me instead of you. When I was sick as a little guy, my mom would say, I wish that I were sick instead of you. When I would get cut, my dad would say, I wish that I had that cut instead of you. When I broke my leg during crew rowing season, right, it was going to knock me out of the whole season. I remember them saying, I wish I had that broken leg instead of you because I know how much you have to do right now and how much you're going to miss. That is a consequence, I guarantee you, of them having Jesus in their heart, knowing the scapegoat, the Lamb of God, because that's scapegoat material right there. They're saying, I wish I had this and I could take it out into the desert away from you and make things okay for you. That's what Jesus does. And if you have that in you, that's a beautiful consequence of how you will then interact with this world. Instead of looking out for yourself and thinking, it's me, 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 you'll be able to look at people around you and say, you know what? I wish I could take that for you. I want to help you as best I can because Jesus has done that for me. Amen.